0: One of the ways I'm coping with all the other stuff I'm dealing with right now, those things being uh ah, recent passing of dog friend who was 13 and a half years old and so I'm like kind of in a grief fog <laughs> I'm taking care of a 83-year-old dad in the other room right now, who's a beautiful sweetheart of a human being, but who also has a variety of other concerns, both Freudian and otherwise. And so as one of my escapist motives, I looked for tracts of land to do a little homestead thing, like, oh, maybe I could buy 15 acres and that would be enough to do a little forest farm, a tiny house cabin, self-sufficient off-grid, and uh, so that's one of about three completely impractical alternate careers. But my career right now is tenuous enough so that I have a little bit a little edge of seriousness to what might be financially viable, but also kind of you know good for me as a human being and uh, kind of good for the soul. Uh, so that's that's one of the flights of fancy I've been flying down recently.
1: You know, I think I've told you this before, but I work as a caregiver for people who are in assisted living and memory care. Um, so it's funny how, how taking care of someone sort of can feed your creativity. I mean, it can drain it because, you know, you only have so much empathy and you empty your cup as you're taking care of people. But I find that, um, since poetry is kind of my alternate career, right? Poetry and writing, um, lately when I'm having difficult days, I write about dementia and care and that's been like a new series of writing that I've been doing. So I've been trying to find ways to collect myself right and deal with that like emotional drainage that I'm dealing with and turn it in like funnel it into my art and into something useful. And actually that's, that's my dream is to buy a small tract of land and build a tiny home on it for my father, because one day I'll be taking care of him and he's going to need care. Um, He's already disabled now. So, uh, you know, we have that in common and I wouldn't say it's totally like unfathomable that you would do that either. Maybe not as a career, right? Like to be doable, Hopefully, I don't know. People are doing it. I mean, it. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, I think we're all realizing we don't need much space. Um, you know, a tiny home is sufficient. And I've always wanted to grow my own food.
0: This actually might apply to one of the poems, of actually, but just for some inside baseball, Rachel. Can you relate to something? I think I coined this term called the archivist problem. So I'm running into kind of a, a dual channel where I'm worried about, I mean, would you start tickling with dementia? see somebody losing actual memories and I think about you know how good is my memory and i'm also in charge of actual physical things like keeping track of family heirlooms and photos and pieces of writing that he's done as well as pieces of writing that i've done and uh, i can get overwhelmed by that very easily
1: i agree i agree i mean and also just yeah even the pieces of writing you've done right i mean i have a google drive that's full of fragments or poems that i wrote that i don't remember and every once in a while i go through it and i'm like okay I have no idea what was happening here, but that's pretty good. Um, so that's why I never Who wrote that, back, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you got to sift through your own, <laughs> you got to sift through your archives. You got to sift so through maybe, your archives. That's
2: yeah.
3: Maybe the answer is two tiny homes, one for the archival a collection and one to live in. <laughs> but yeah, and you were like shaking, you're nodding your head with the tiny home thing. Do you have an experience with that?
2: No, I was more to the dementia, and my father passed away. Louis body dementia. It was quite an, you know, there's a lot in there. It's an emotional event, and writing does bring, you know, some uh, focus and and even closure for me. So I appreciate your saying that, Rachel. And, yeah, I was just agreeing with that, yeah.
3: Okay, sure. Yeah, so we have some common threads. Uh, Turns out, who would have thought? You want to jump into a poem i think one of them on our list was they're all from issue 17 which was from november and uh one poem that was on our list to cover tonight was uh, Braca k sharp and the poem title waiting for the gift so if you wouldn't mind uh, whoever could read it i suppose Um, It was kind of a collective effort to uh, narrow down our list of selections for tonight. So yeah, if anybody wants to read uh, the poem to begin, then we'll um, we'll give some of our thoughts.
0: Uh, Since this is the one I picked to talk about, I feel like that's my obligation. Uh, Let me add the caveat that as an English teacher, anytime I read a poem out loud in class, I know it well enough so that I'm kind of anticipating twists and turns I've gotten exactly one and a half times through this poem, so I haven't done the deep study. So we'll do the, the best we can with kind of an improvisational style uh, and see how it goes. This'll be the first time I've read it through where I really have a sense of what the gift is. So we'll see how it goes, it's called Waiting for the Gift. When the hand of rain is reasonable, when from the static, I can tell that a storm is imminent, when air leaves and sparrows pause, readying themselves for lightning too. This is the expected journey of the rain, but yesterday the storm brought with it the pause before the fall, the gasp before the start and with it, the need to fall into storm, to flow, to stand at the open door, hands outstretched, face tipped up. Now I am ready to receive the wind, the slap of wet, the vibration like a prayer, like praise. And this is why I like the rain, adagio of luminescence, beauty of expectation. And when the storm came, I watched the bubbles form on the deck and burst and there on the spot. And I, alongside the sparrows, all balanced and wet, dripping trees, bent my head back to encourage this gift. Uh, at least yes uh so um yeah where, where do we begin is this the commentary portion
3: sure yeah just uh take a moment say uh, thank you to uh to Braca sharp for for sharing this with us thank
0: you Braca, for sneaking up behind me and kind of hitting me with a baseball bat and i was like the first time i read it i was kind of tearing up but i didn't know why pretty nice i think i imagery is very nice by the end i was kind of clutching my throat and clearly stuff going on with me, dad things, dog things, et cetera. And I, I liked all the poems for similar reasons. There was a simplicity to this one that I appreciated. There's something, I, it's probably a cliche at this point, but so is sex. Uh, it's a common experience to have that electricity, the feeling of static before the storm. There's a lot of us that get that. And I'm somebody who's traditionally kind of Uh, Anxious in situations where there's no physical danger. We're at the DMV, uh, or we're dealing with some kind of bureaucratic paperwork. That uh, the going through the security at the airport that really gets me anxious and tight. But there's something about before a big storm comes. uh, If you can kind of sense it, you're feeling it coming. The atmosphere is changing. The animals are getting it. The leaves and the trees kind of turn inside out. So. Anybody who wants to touch on that moment, uh, I'm interested in, because I relate to that moment, but this feels like this really nice slow, mo- slow motion, sensual version of that. Um, layer one would be, doesn't the imagery and the kind of sensitivity that the narrator feels uh, make me remember how good it feels to be in that moment. So that's obviously one of the channels running. then another channel is kind of sensuality. I'm gonna go ahead and say bordering on sexual and you can do a gross frat boy reading of the poem and have it be 100% sexual. I don't need to do that, but one could and I think make a good case for it. But the idea of whatever that electricity is, the anticipation, uh, you know, the, the electricity before the storm to have that captured so nicely that's an experience I had as a very small kid, five, six or seven years old running around. I'm afraid of so many physical things, but a giant thunderstorm that could have tornadoes in it. I'm just blasting out the back door, running around uh, you know ducking from tree to tree and they kind of a bravery that I only had in that particular sense and that's reminded me of that. and so yes, very grateful to Broca for kind of bringing that buck back up, particularly as I kind of marched towards the 40th birthday. Well,
1: and it's spiritual too. Oh, sorry, Aaron, go ahead.
3: I just said, wow, (laughs) I didn't quite get the, um, I get it now, but like in the fourth stanza, getting into more of the sensual reading, I was so caught up in more of the emotional and kind of the the emotion of like loss. I was feeling and grief. And then if you just read the fourth stanza, you're like, oh, this is different. Um, so I kind of, yeah, there was a layer of it where I was kind of like not quite, that wasn't quite coming through for me on the first couple of reads even. But that's funny that it kind of triggers that childhood memory of the anticipation of a storm. And I'll shout out Melissa Mulvahill. Chris, I don't know if you if you remember the Mouthful of Storm prose poem? Yes. From a yes. Same genre. Previous roundtable. And that was kind of a, a, a similar spin on on that on that theme. So uh, shout out to Melissa.
1: I'm not sure where you live in in the country, Anne. Um but I live in the West. I'm in Nevada, and rain is considered a gift, a huge gift. We only get seven inches of rain per year. When it rains, you know, people around here we step outside and we look up. and um and I love that fourth stanza, by the way. and not just for for yes, it's sensual, but it's also spiritual. Um this idea of receiving the wind, the slap of wet, the vibration, like prayer, like praise, all of that 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 entire four stanza is there's so much that you can read into it, right? Like it's not it's not just sensuality. It's not just anticipation, but it's like prayer. And I think about that, you know, anytime I see it rain, i I have a little window here and I open my window so that I can experience it so that I can receive that gift. And I like I like the language here the way that even the language is anticipatory um, when the hand of rain is reasonable, when from the static and when the storm came, I really like the way that this writer interacts with the storm. So um, yeah, it wasn't just, you know, that, yes, there's that like childlike memory, but there's also um, a maturity to it. The way that we're approaching the storm and the way that we're talking about it here. It's a, the poem itself is a gift.
2: I'm in California and it's raining right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the central coast and it rained all day yesterday and some today and last year it rained once so I'm pretty excited this is our second time it's raining this this fall so this poem is so appropriate I I I I love that first line Rachel you mentioned that it, when the hand of rain is reasonable like it's it seems like writing 101 but I'm going to say it because it's so easy to just write the rain is coming or the rain was coming. And, and that's, sure, that says something. But when we say something like when the hand of rain is reasonable, you're like, like you said, the anticipation, it's going to, ha- it looks like it's going to happen. It's reasonable. I just really love that the way the um, author brought us into that and all the winds, of course, and, and the something will happen here. Something is going to happen. I also really liked, in in the writing, there were unexpected phrases. I mean, there's lots of verbs. There's pause and gasp and need and fall, flow, stand, slap, uh, vibration. Like, I I mean, there's so much. There's so much action, and it really brings me into it. But I love things like the need to fall into the storm, because I think of rainfall, stormfall, and the author flipped that into the need to fall into the storm. That was my favorite line of the of the poem for sure. I just, oh, I still get kind of chills on that one. I really love it. And and yeah, the ready to receive the wind, the slap. Similar. I also really liked, I watched the bubbles form on the deck and burst there on the spot. I have seen that. I have never voiced it. I have never heard it voiced. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rocca, for voicing that for me. So yeah. And the positivity of the line at the end really enjoyed
0: this poem the imagery of the bubbles i think was a nice grounding thing i was also getting some of the the spiritual stuff with um falling into something but also kind of hands up supplication style and you could have let that turn into nothing but spiritual abstractions and then all of a sudden the little bubbles on the deck you're like immediately oh that's right right and it grounds the whole thing It, it makes it much more concrete before we get into anything Uh, too abstract or convoluted in the spiritual realm.
3: Uh, There's two avenues. Like I was kind of thinking when I was listening for a minute and on one level, there's like so many, like just good practical, like little moves. The language is pretty direct and you read it through and the sentences kind of read like sentences when you read it aloud. And there's kind of a conventionalness to the, to the structure there. Um, but there's these interesting little twists, and they're, you know, not anything too, like, too hard to follow or anything. But, yeah, there's, like, an embodiment happening. There's kind of these action, kind of repetition, like you mentioned, of the verb words. Um, and a couple of, like, yeah, just insightful images. So, like, adding it all up, putting all those layers together, you come out with, at the other end, like, yeah, this is a really interesting poem about you know, watching the rain through a window or something like that, which obviously is kind of a relatively cliche place to start, but it goes in such an interesting and uh, nuanced direction. And then the other thing, which maybe you could comment on as a thought is like, how to land on something positive, uplifting, even though we mentioned the word spiritual a couple of times without falling into that cliche. Like, how does this happen? Because this, I think, is, is a success on that. And that's kind of one of the one of the things that stood out and just from looking at it the first time when it was submitted.
0: For me, I only thought of this in the last 10 seconds, and I don't want this to take away from Braca because obviously it's not derivative. The scene in the Shawshank Redemption when he literally crawls, crawls through a sewage uh, towards freedom and then does the arms outstretched scene in the rain is literally the cleansing um that scene must be kind of archetypal because i I don't even feel like it was the first time i saw it it's just this shawshank redemption took a similar spiritual moment and that was their spin on it but i have to assume there must be something really uh essential about that feeling or that kind of moment and giving yourself up in the rain having this simultaneously sensual and spiritual moment And this seems like a more high definition version of that kind of the more sophisticated version of that same scene, which is so hopeful and so redemptive. And they they hit you over the head with it in the Shawshank Redemption. But this is kind of a more sophisticated twist on what kind of feels like the same spiritual jujitsu move.
3: Good points. Yeah, the archetypal nature of rain cleansing. I have a quick anecdote if you're up for it. Just on um, two days ago, I drove to work, parked, was in the parking lot. Again, I kind of have a little bit of routine of maybe five or ten minutes, just kind of like settling in just before I go into work. And uh, it was raining that day, so it just kind of struck me at you know during those five or ten minutes, like oh, let's instead of listening to a podcast or the music or the radio, let's just listen to the rain on the car roof. And just kind of like sit and you kind of like just listen to the rain for five minutes. And like, how nice is that? Like that's, until you got to walk out in the rain, but uh, it happened to lighten up when I needed to leave, Um, But just that sound of rain. uh, It's not pleasant when you got to be out in the rain, if you don't want to get wet, but if you're just listening to the rain, that is quite a contemplative meditative moment, I think.
1: Well, I was, I was going to say that um, rain is one of those, like, it's like, one of those forces of nature that feels so mystical. It's it's soothing, right? Like you say, it's this contemplative moment where, you know, I, I I go back to the first line of this poem, when the hand of rain is reasonable, which implies that sometimes rain is not reasonable and storms never behave as we expect them to. Um, and I think in the second stanza, yeah, this is the expected journey of rain, but yesterday the storm brought with it the pause before the fall, the gas before the start, and with it, the need to fall into the storm to flow. Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about, right? The need to flow, um, that the storm is something that just comes upon you and you just open yourself up to it and accept it coming. It's it's like the hand of God or whatever you believe, even if you know about how the weather patterns work. I mean, again, as a Nevadan, it's like every time it rains, it's it's this mysterious force and everybody stops and steps out into it. And, um, you know, in the high desert where I live, I live in Northwest or in, in Northwest Nevada, um, rain is often unreasonable. It starts suddenly and it's a downpour and then it's gone just as quickly. Um, and from neighborhood to neighborhood where you drive, there might be no rain one neighborhood over and you can look and see the, the like downpour coming and you can just see the clouds dumping. And, um, so the hand of rain is rarely reasonable here but um, even more when it's unreasonable, you want to step outside into it even more because it feels so much bigger than you. So um, I don't really remember where I was going with that um, except that I I agree. It's a meditative thing. I love to listen to the sound of rain on the roof. I feel like that's, that's a line from a poem, like maybe a sounds like Mary Oliver to me or something. Um, The sound of rain on the roof is like triggering some ancient memory of some poem I've read somewhere. So Um, I'm sorry to whoever I'm paraphrasing and I can't remember who it is. Yeah, I think
3: this is not what you're thinking of, but Sonic Youth have a cool song, Rain on Tin. Look that one up, deep cut. Um, But yeah, I know we'll go, we'll move on to the next poem. Um, But yeah, I don't know if Chris, your mind was going into an unreasonable storm. I think we just experienced that two weeks ago. (laughs) Rachel, you mentioned seven inches of rain a year. and We got seven feet of snow (laughs) in two days. So, yeah. That's
2: unreasonable. Weird
3: weird weather patterns, like, yeah, we know. (laughs) uh, We'll move on to, uh, uh, maybe we'll do the, uh, we'll move into the uh, late summer phase, August outro. August outro by Julie Wendell.
2: A pestering two-beat chirp, a sound my mother warned was the beginning of the end. I was a young girl then, long before I learned the portent applied to me and what comes achingly fast then lingers. My throat catches on nectar drunk, decades eaten. I jitter my legs, rub them together, spread my human version of a leathery wing. I aim to have 10,000 children. I aim to attract you, to pierce your ears with my outro and not let go. (laughs) Well, I always love poems that bring in something with simplicity and actually hit a mark because simplicity for simplicity's sake isn't enough. So what caught me here, first of all, I love That opening line, we had that in our workshop, a pestering to be chirp. It says so much. It gives me so much rhythm and a feeling and a hearing. And um, I'm thinking, I'm already thinking crickets. And I'm already wondering about how this applies. August, crickets, end of the summer. And then she really, this, I won't use she, because the narrator in this poem, the narrator goes into a... I'm trying to think what, like, um, zoomorphism, the narrator is the, is being a cricket, or going into the feeling of that cricket, and that really caught me, and pulled me in, and was unexpected, you know, and there's hyperbole, but for a human, but not for a cricket, <laughs> I aim to have 10,000 children, you know? but I really saw the, the human feeling behind what this cricket goes through. And what this narrator is going through to have um, to have uh, a relationships that are once puberty has happened. There's she was a young girl then, but but this beginning of the end. And I'm thinking about this narrator's eggs and the eggs of the cricket and lifespan. And so that's the content for me. I just really enjoyed too the way that. Um, Just the way there was like jitter, that word, that um, irregular random movement brought so much, just one word brought so much in the context and then rubbing them together and spread my human version of a leathery wing. It was so visual for me. So, um, yeah. And I just, again, love that literary element of the human like an animal. I often see anthropomorphism making an animal like a human. So I enjoyed that this insect
1: was the metaphor used here. And you touch on something like I'm, when I was reading this poem for the first time, yes, I mean, the opening lines, right. But then the beginning of the end, I was a young girl then long before I learned the portent deployed, applied to me and what comes achingly fast and lingers the same thing, right. The end of puberty, there's something so useful implied by summer and the August outro, right. And something about, um, I'm I'm thinking of like coming of age and finding out what it is to be a woman um because this is a very feminine poem I aim to have 10,000 children I aim to attract you to pierce your ears um so like this like kind of you know your your cricket chirp is your siren call which is unique I I'd, I'd never thought about it like that but, is there's something so so dreadful about growing up as a woman in a way, the beginning of the end, there's a sense of dread to it, what comes achingly fast and then lingers. And then suddenly, you know, what happens when you can't have ten thousand children and you can't attract? You know, um, who are you then at the end of August as you come into the fall of your life? So I love that you um, mentioned
2: like the portent. it the it's like calamitous. It's like yes. heading to a. it's like something's definitely ending. Just like summer. Yeah, just like there's yes. so many pieces to that.
1: Yes, this whole poem is a, is a vibe. Um, and, and you know, I'm glad we're talking about it because I had chosen a different poem, but I thought about that line. I was a young girl then for hours when I was reading through this.
0: Uh, that You said it, Rachel, and not me, but yeah, it feels like a, a clear cut case where we don't have to worry about the they, them pronouns
2: Yeah, I always worry, though. I still have to to make (laughs) sure
0: I'm cool. But
2: yeah, Um, there's that feminine
0: feel. So Yeah, it seems like the poem kind of announces itself gently, uh, clearly with this female situation. um, So that's going to be that'll be a, a bigger stretch. But what I absolutely relate to is the summer cycle or the summer vacation cycle is how I would conceive of it. And I unfortunately got this from my dad and Dylan Thomas. And uh, now we were green in the evening of our years kind of stuff where we're talking about uh, high summer being kind of the peak and then the, the sanction after that. And I, I do this thing where I formulate an entire summer vacation around what I hope is gonna do and then summer vacation's ending. And we're gonna have to go back to school and the death of fun and then the absolute kind of and I also recognize that I do that with weekends. Like, ah, weekends, what's better than Saturday morning? And then it's all kind of down from there. And it doesn't have the urgency that it would if you're also, well, it does have the urgency in terms of mortality. But if you're thinking about uh, procreation, recreation from a feminine perspective, that's the thing like, ah, oh, there's a whole other layer that I can't even uh, get at that would have to do with the urgency of the end of summer. Having grown up with kind of the, the Hemingway version of why you're approaching death, this is really nice because it is kind of the much more intelligent uh, kind of fallback position, but yet still kind of hopeful. Does anybody have a take? You mentioned, uh, jitter my legs, rubbing together, spread my human version of a leathery wing. Whenever I read a poem like this, I want to, I have a craving to get pretty literal. What's the, what's the leathery wing?
2: Well, that's what rubs together to make the siren call, right? The individual well, she's, call, and they so are really leather. They're, they're called leathery the way the croppings go on them. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. So that's how the cricket actually p- performs
2: the mm-hmm. noise
0: that attracts the males, but mm-hmm. she's acknowledging that it's a metaphor. She's kind of stepping out of being the cricket because she says the human version
2: Right.
0: Uh, what What is what is she referring to? Yeah, These
2: she things makes things. herself present, the narrator's present.
0: Okay. I was thinking like karaoke or, a, you know, a, a way that a, a someone could perform to pull people in. I tend to get overly literal with some of the metaphors. You
1: know what like puts itself in my head, and I don't know why this is what pops up when I read this poem, but spread my human version of a leathery wing, I think about to launch or to fly. Um, what comes next after you spread your wings, right? You launch yourself into what is the twilight of your youth. And again, I, you know, one thing I really want to compliment about this poem is how dense it is for how short it is. It's just two stanzas. And I always find when I'm writing poetry, sometimes I need two, three pages to get around to my point. And this is so succinct, you know, but yeah, human version of a leathery wing. I aim to have 10,000 children. I aim to attract you. I just think about like launching yourself into into, I guess, because, you know, you think about like mating calls and mating season when it comes to like animals and not just crickets, but I'm thinking of like birds too, where there's like so much fierce competition. So there's so much implied here, um, beyond just like the end of summer. There's so much more implied here than just losing your youth.
2: I also want to say about the leathery wing. I want you to go on Rachel, but I just want to interject something I looked up and under the leathery wing, it's called an ovipositor. It's the pod in the abdomens where the eggs are laid. So there's a sexual, sensual, reproductive piece to this when she says, spread my human version of a leathery wing. I think about, you know, it's it's very sexual. So I'm just tagging into what you're saying, Rachel, with a little bit of anatomy of a cricket. Just saying.
1: (laughs) Well, and I love the line, I aim to attract you, like specifically. So it's like, at the end of all of this, we're actually addressing you, just this one you. And I don't know who who we're talking to, but for me, it's like, I think it's a, I aim to pierce your ears, but it's really like, I aim to attract you pierces me when I'm reading that line. Um And then I think it really grounds the poem it brings the whole poem together. And then it's just like, I'm talking to you. I aim to attract you, um to pierce your ears with my outro and not let go. Even after, even after my eggs are gone. Yeah, this poem is so, it's kind of like a spell. It lingers, I will say, um, you know, what comes achingly fast and lingers, this poem lingers. Yeah, yeah.
0: Offer kind of like the anti-siren poem. That's a, the <laughs> siren is like pull you in, but ultimately to consume you. So in nature, that would be like the praying mantis or the black widow side. And this is kind of the opposite of that. I, I, I want to uh, be with you, but also be with you after whatever physiological imperatives we have, there's still kind of a sense of uh, that we'll be together once she's attracted, and maybe that's my optimistic sensibility.
3: That is part of, I think, the what draws a reader into the poem is those two stanza ending lines and how the line breaks before the last line of each stanza. So it's what comes achingly fast line break, then lingers. And then in the second stanza with my outro, line break and not let go. So the two last lines, then lingers and not let go. Kind of just, they kind of bounce back and forth off each other and it is that. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of left with this uncertainty of like, yeah, do we, is that the lingering a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Do we want to let go? Do we not want to let go? Like. Maybe that's, again, subjective reading by like me struggling with, like, letting go of things. Um, so I'm like, I want to let go of things that I want to let go of. Um, but there is that kind of, like, bouncing back and forth of where I don't think the reader is certain, like, what the emotional impact of those are for the speaker. Mm. We'll shift into uh, Ian Schultz, the poet. Grandfather Passes in the Hall is the title of the poem. If, uh, if Rachel, you want to read this one?
1: Sure. Um, okay. Grandfather Passes in the Hall. I invoke your death to take from you the certainty of your hands that press steel poles into the lake bed to lay out the dock in the spring. I carry you when I am stuffed with caramel corn. You better get in on this, kid. I pick up a fork from the table and hold it close to my eye regardless of your warning. I carry you like a dark heart in the world I crawl in. Fill a progenitive herds for shelter and warm disinterest. I evoke your death and ask to be memorable. You said I looked bored at your deathbed. I guess I was bored at your deathbed and squirmed in my little body away from eye contact. I want more from you now. I want to cross the bridge north to a wilderness, clear-cut and picked over. Legions of copper miners, loggers, and fishermen feeding their winnings down the rivers over lakes. I want more from you now, birch trees along a highway whose paper white bark makes good kindling through the tree, though the tree may die if the bark is removed directly from the trunk. I would only do that if it were life or death, Dad said, when we went to the cabin to clean. I will never build a home or cure deer meats. I will cross a bridge far to the south. Small fires on steel towers burn off natural gas. The pavement bathes in fog. I invoke your death to be remembered by you. Um, so, I know, Chris, right? I know you didn't get to read this poem. Um, And I always knew I was going to select this poem, I think. When I talked to Aaron earlier today, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Grandfather Passes in the Hall, but I'll take another quick dive. But, um, you know, first of all, I have a deep love for long, continuous stanzas as a poem. I think it takes a lot of skill to grab a reader and hold them through a page-long stanza that's uninterrupted, um, which is called a stick that's one of my favorite vocab words the type of poem this is um and I really think the line breaks are excellent so I think I think our listeners if they have a chance should really pull up this poem and take a look at the way it's laid out um because I think you know every word is at its right place in this poem it's very good in that sense um so there's a couple of reasons I chose it the first is the repetition of invoke and there's a couple of different Ways that you can look at the word "invoke." Um, first definition, just being to call on as a witness. Um, to to invoke something is. I think I actually pulled up the Webster's or Oxford. Yeah, I used Oxford. I never used Webster's. Um, but to cite or appeal to as an authority for an action or support of an argument, or to call on a deity or spirit in prayer as a witness or for inspiration. And I really looked at the second definition here, right? Um, the idea of invoking a deity or a spirit, and the way that we sometimes worship our elders and the way that they become these mystical figures, right? And the sense of memory in this poem. I pick up a fork from the table and hold it close to my eye, regardless of your warning. Um, This is definitely from the perspective of of your child. Um, I looked bored at your deathbed. I guess I was bored at your deathbed and I squirmed in my little body away from eye contact. And then the repetition of the sentence, I want more from you now. And you hear that twice. And another thing that I thought was a really interesting repetition was um, the bridges that are being mentioned here. I want to cross the bridge north to the wilderness, clear cut and picked over, but this writer knows that that's not what's going to happen. Um, I will never build a home or cure deer meats. I will cross a bridge far to the south, small fires on steel towers burn off natural gas. And when I looked up the the background for this writer, the little bio, um, they're from Louisiana. So yes, looking to the south, you would see the oil fields, right? The oil fields and natural gas fields. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this poem is that neither option, crossing north nor south, is necessarily better than the other one. It's necessarily good because it's clear cut and picked over. And there's a bunch of um, copper miners, loggers, and fishermen feeding their winnings down the river over lakes. Um, there's a sort of inevitability to that, right? Like either you go north or you're, or go south, but you're in two types of industry these like definitive statements. I will never build a home or cure deer meats. I want more from you now. I want to cross the bridge north. Um, It's powerful. And there's some, I think it's direct, but I think there's a lot to be interpreted here. And there's almost a sense of mysticism from it. The way that we're talking about, I think the way that we're talking about like the, the birch trees and the paper white bark and the crossing north to the picked over wilderness, and then the last line, "I invoke your death to be remembered by you," is, I'll remember that line. It is memorable. Um, beautiful poem. I really appreciate Ian for writing this.
3: And I'll, I'll put a challenge out there to any writers: um, use the word progenerative in a poem and have it not like seem weird or like overwrought or like. Because <laughs> like even when I like reread this poem. And I looked over it again. It's like, oh, that's a weird word. It, it didn't like stand out in some way, but it's such a like unusual word. So, it's it, like a pre-vocab
1: it's, it's, word.
3: I know <laughs> it speaks to like how much else is going on in the poem, where you're not. I was at least speaking for myself. I wasn't distracted by it, and like, why did he use that? It didn't seem out of place in in the context. So. Yeah, that's just, I think that's kind of one of those signs when you're, you know, evaluating poems and, and I guess Rachel and Anne and Chris also can speak to it. It's like you notice things like oh, the second time through that they did this little trick they did that little thing. So I think in each of the poems we've talked about so far, there's these kind of really practical techniques. And this one, like Rachel, you mentioned the, the single stanza you can kind of like hide little things in there where in, in when you break up stanzas in, in shorter chunks, you can't hide as much or, you know, something doesn't like pass through the reader's eye. And this was kind of an interesting take on how much is packed in here. And like, you could read it how many times, five times, 10 times and it's still like, oh, I didn't even see that image. I didn't see that phrase. Yeah, there was just kind of so much coming through on uh, multiple reads with this poem. I think that was one of the things that stood out to me.
1: Oh, well, and speaking of that word, philoprogenitive, um, <laughs> the the words that surround it too, the line that precedes it, I carry you like a dark heart in the world I crawl in, philoprogenitive herds for shelter and warm disinterest. Philoprogenitive means many offspring. Um, so philoprogenitive herds, herds is a really interesting Um, way to describe the world that you crawl in and it's again it's like every single line here is well placed the next after warm disinterest we have I evoke your death and ask it to be memorable but yet this this writer was bored at grandfather's deathbed so was it a memorable death um there's there's so much there's so much sadness just oozing out of this poem but not in a way that takes the emotional tone so high that you can't read it without feeling like you're reading literature. And I think that's a really hard line to tread. i struggle struggled with it a lot in my own work, um, making sure that you rein in your emotional tone so that you can get your point across and so that you can still make it art. Really great. But yeah, philoprogenitive. Like I had to read it a couple of times and then I read it out loud before I joined this podcast because I was like, am I going to stumble over that? But it works and it works rhythmically in the poem.
2: I found that line, I carry you like a dark heart in the world I crawl in, that you mentioned, Rachel. So much of it are these memories that are specific, to paint the character, to paint the grandfather, to get this lineage going, to paint the dad. You've got these generational effects, right? I'm really aware of, of the subtlety that he mentions of the, like the hazardous or damning effects on the environment that have passed. In the grandfather's time, the dad's trying to sort of lessen that by his teaching to his son and then you've got the son going off or the grandson going off but that line I carry like a dark heart in the world I crawl and I think that was the crux of the sadness for me he had these these different great specifics but that I keep I kept coming back to that as I read through and then I love that I want more from you now it's as if that maturity that awareness of loss is coming now to him at this age of, you know, his dad's still alive, so he's somewhere in his adulthood, it sounds like, and ready to to leave and to go on. Um, I did love the last line so much, like you said, so memorable. I invoke your death to be remembered by you. And the whole poem, he's remembering his grandfather, but really his pleading is he wants to be remembered. He wants to have this connection to that past. (laughs)
0: Well, you started talking
3: about the archival aspect. That reminded me of it, yeah. Yeah,
0: I think my impulse towards the archival is like a superficial way to do what this poem is succeeding at. Um, I'm very interested, though a little desperate, but I'm interested in things like when people talk about the strength of my ancestors or uh, Valhalla, when you die, you're going to... The halls of your ancestors, uh, the Native American kind of connecting with your ancestors and being able to pull uh, from the strength. And I have a strange or what to me feels like a strange situation where my father was born in 1939 and his father was born in 95. And I deliberately like to flash that number because people usually have to do a little second take, work the see So I was born. Yeah, okay. So my grandfather was born in 1895, which means his father was very aware of the Civil War. So in some way, I feel kind of connected to history because we've waited a long time in my family to have kids. And so you've got this nice long string back, but I know nothing about any of that lineage. It's just kind of a fun little exercise to think about it. And all I have is my dad's obsession with his own childhood but no other connections, no other tree branches, which reminds me of one of the other poems that we didn't get to talk about. And so there's this strange uh, desire to honor his memory, but also sort of maintain my sense of self in whatever the lineage is. And so when you get to a line like, I invoke your death to be remembered by you, that one just like stabs me in the neck with a knitting needle because uh, I've been thinking about that my entire life because my dad's obsessed with mortality and also life, but also death. And the way that plays out through poetry is we get interested in the poets who are uh, utilizing about life, death, mortality. So we'd like Dylan Thomas and his ilk. And so seeing somebody kind of strip it down to its very essentials like this, very appealing and uh, tough to get through, but I like it the first time through. <laughs>
1: Well, and also the sense of of crossing bridges here, right? There's um, either you're going to cross a bridge to the north and you're going to become a copper miner, a logger, or a fisherman, and you're going to piss away your winnings and it's going to stream down the rivers over the lakes, or you're going to cross to the south and you're going to ostensibly work um, near the natural gas towers and the pavement that bathes in fog. Um, but also death is a crossing. Death is another bridge that you cross. Um, so there's like this sense of inevitability in this poem that's a, a sad type of inevitability. There's something really blue-collar about it. The grandfather who stabbed poles into the lake bed and set up the docks. Um, and all of these people that are that are all of these options are to work with your hands, but this child will never build a home or cure deer meats. They're not gonna um live on their little island and stay and build a home and stay on, say, whatever your homestead is. They're going to go off and work for industry inevitably so sorry i lost my train of thought again but um i think a lot about the bridges and the sense of like crossing and the sense of inevitability in this and the sort of blue collar workers that are mentioned in this um i I really identify with that um coming from a town where a lot of people are blue collar and coming from a sort of blue collar family myself so i can only praise i have nothing but praise Awesome.
3: Well, do you want to do a false close and don't don't disconnect? Um, And maybe we'll have a couple more poems to to chat about for a little bit. Uh, But for now, we'll say goodbye. Thank you, everybody, Rachel and Chris, uh, for talking about these poems. And uh, we'll see you again soon.
2: Love it. Thank you.
3: Thank you, guys, for it. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you.